Okay, y'all, open up your Bibles uh, or turn on your electronic devices, you at home as well, to Esther chapter 5. Uh, we're going to look at 5 and 6. We're actually going to read the whole thing. I could not figure out a way to read the text and leave something out because it would drastically impact the meaning of the text for you. And then what would end up happening is I'd have to tell you anyway. So let's just read it, even though it's a little longer, because either that or I'm just going to spend more time actually explaining what just happened because we didn't read it. So that's the way I went with this. Uh, does everyone know Stuart Petrie? Of course you don't. He's a Connecticut man who was clamming, fishing for clams. You know what you do when you're fishing for clams? It's kind of like that thing. What's the thing where you stick your hand in a hole and you pull out a catfish? What's it called? Noodling. Okay, well, up north... Uh, they do that with clams. They skim along the bottom and reach down, pick them up, put them in their little clam bags and head home. And I don't know why anybody likes those things, but people actually do like those things. Uh, well, while he was doing that, uh, unknown to him, his wedding ring slips off his finger and goes into the Long Island Sound, lost forever. Uh, I mean, okay, that's happened. It's happened to us, right? It's not necessarily that big a deal, but um, they... Uh, were married since they were kids, and he was 80 years old, and so it was devastating to him. Now you fast forward two years into the future, and he went back to Long Island Sound, and he went back into clamming, so now he's 82, and he just hits the jackpot. I mean, he is just raking in the clams, filling up his bag. He filled it up so quickly, he's like, I'm done for the day. He was done before 12 o'clock, so he starts heading back to his truck, and while he's going back to his truck with his payload, you know, he's rummaging through them, looking at all the stuff he's got. He's thinking of the clam boil or the raw clam, whatever he's doing, whatever you do with those things. My dad eats those, I, I just don't understand it. But he's excited about it. But in his bag, though, he, he sees something down at the bottom of the bag, and one particular clam was covering it up, and he pulls it aside, and he sees this old, dirty wedding ring. Oh, no, but wait, it's mine, he says. Two years later, he digs up in the middle of the Long Island Sound his wedding ring. Isn't that phenomenal? And this is what he said. It was an ab this is what an 80-year-old says. It was an absolutely stupendous feeling, right? Stupendous. Who uses that word today? But I love that. It's an absolutely stupendous feeling, he said, to find his wedding ring. Don't you wish you could find lost stuff like that? I mean, think about it. If you could find all the lost stuff in your life, like Peter Petri did, that would be phenomenal. I mean, think of a lost love letter that your great-great-great-grandmother wrote to your great-great-great-grandfather in a whole other world away. Would that be phenomenal to find those kind of letters, to discover them? Or how about the lost book you know you gave away and, the, and that, that person has not given that book back to you? I'm not bitter. It just happens. Or that lost relationship. Just think, what if you could just find lost stuff like a lost relationship with your spouse, a child, a parent, a friend? What if you could... Find lost stuff like that, like the piece of you that got lost. That someone you trusted stole from you. 
that that trauma took from you. That that failure and rejection just wrenched away from you. Don't you wish you could find that lost piece of you just like Petru? It was absolutely stupendous. Mr. Petru says, don't you wish you could find stuff like that? How about with God? Don't you wish you could find God like that? Oh, God! There you are! There you... That's where you've been. This is where you are. Oh, God, that's why these bad things are happening to me. Now I know. I get it. Oh, and God, I now know when this horrible season will be over. Phenomenal, right? It's absolutely stupendous. I know where you are, God. Wouldn't you love if you could find God like that? <laughs> Welcome Welcome to the mystery of the missing God. Are you ready? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at five and six. All right. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. That is like unbelievable sentence. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, here it is, y'all. This is what we've been waiting for, right? She won favor in the sight of the king. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king. Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther again, what is it that you wish? What is it? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Oh, so we've got to wait another day. But Haman, man, he went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai, though, at the king's gate, he didn't rise. He didn't tremble before him. So Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king has honored him, and how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And here it is again, tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows of 50 cubits at 75 feet higher than two telephone poles be made. There's a, I, I said this in the first service. There's a little debate going on about this. See, the Persians were the ones that started uh, crucifixion. So they were really, really, the Romans perfected it, but the Persians started it. 
but they don't know if you put a body that was already dead on a spike or if you put them on the spike to kill them. So it could be either. And the only reason why is you come next week, it might make a difference. Just a little cliffhanger. Let the gallows be 75 feet high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. What a great idea. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes, assassinate him, in other words. And the king said, well, what honor, you know, he stood up, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing, sir, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Because Haman now has gotten in early in the morning because he wants to be the first in line to see the king. Now, Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him that night. And the king's young men said, Haman's there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man with whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> Can you see this? This is just beautiful. And Haman said to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor. Now watch what happens, all right? He doesn't want money. He has money. He doesn't want power. He's the second most powerful man in the world. Here we get to the bottom of Haman's heart. What does he want more than anything? He wants to be publicly recognized. He wants to be a rock star. And Haman said to the king, well, for whom the man the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has just ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. He wants to be king. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let him lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, well, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. That is just unbelievable. Oh, just to like further say it, Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes, the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Right? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. This is beautiful. Mordecai doesn't give a rip about being important. He's just like, what is I'm going back to work. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Thus is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask to speak us back to life again. We thank you for Esther. Esther surprising all of us. Esther surprising me. I say that. I'm completely surprised by Esther. Oh, Lord, speak us back to life again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the question of this particular passage. Where are you, God? That's the question, really, of the whole book of Esther. 
The case of the missing God. Where are you, God? Now, everyone asks that question when they're scared. We all ask that question when we're scared. We all ask that question when we're desperate. We all ask that question when we're in pain. We all ask that question when we're suffering. We ask the question, where are you, God, when we're at our end? Right? When we've completely lost control of our lives. When the plane has lost its engines, there's a fire in the back, the steering doesn't work, the instruments have gone haywire, and you have no landing wheels. Where are you, God? Right? Where are you, God, though, if you think about it, let's just look at it like in an abstract, like it's not real personal. We just say, where are you, God? If you look at it, that's a really creepy question. It's a really spooky question. The question's haunted with poltergeists and ghosts and monsters under the bed and scary sounds in the closet. Why? Because it means God is missing. It means God is gone. Esther 5 and 6 is the mystery of the missing God. It's going to solve it for us. We've finally come to the end of the mystery. The case, the clues are, have been building for four chapters, and in chapter 5 and 6, it's over. It's done. It's solved. Where are you, God? Well, the mystery starts with Esther. Remember last week at Esther 4, we ended with her stunning courage. You remember her stunning cor- courage? It went like this in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. This is her courage. Go gather all the Jews who are found in the capital. Hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and the young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. So remember, the Persian law is no one can go before the Lord of all the earth. That's what they called the. That's what Xerxes called himself. Can you imagine he walked around going, if you saw the three hundred, you got a picture of it. The Lord of all the earth, right? So here, the Lord of all the earth, you can't come before him. You can't stand before him unsummoned, uninvited, under penalty of death. (laughs) So Esther says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And here we get those phenomenal words. And if I perish, I perish. I mean, to be able to say those words, to be able to feel those words, is pure peace. It is a security and a joy and a courage and a love that goes into your blood system all the way down to your toes, up to the top of your hairs, and just radiates out of you. If I perish, I Esther 5 now, our text today, starts with Esther standing all alone in the king's inner court. Do you see this? Unsummoned. It's a phenomenal picture. Because here she is. She is all alone, standing in the inner court, unsummoned, all by herself. It's the stuff of the movies. I mean, the inner court is called the Hall of Pillars. Why? Because it's a Hall of Pillars. There are 36 pillars in the inner court, and they are... 65 feet tall, 65 feet tall, 
36 pillars in one room that's outside the king's throne room. 65, think about this. The Hollywood letters up in Hollywood, California are 49 feet tall. These are 65. Telephone poles are 37 feet tall. These are 65. These are 65-foot pillars in one massive room that has one massive goal, and that is to make you feel incredibly small before the Lord of all the earth. Oh, and it gets even better than this because the Lord of all the earth is sitting on his throne, and he can see you when you step into that hall. Who's there? <laughs> he knows who's there. Who dares to come before me unsummoned? <clears throat> um, it's me, Esther. Okay, can you imagine? I mean, this is the stuff of the movies, but can you imagine? I mean, what does everybody do when you see, when you drive by a car wreck, what do you do? Come on, I mean, we all do it. I'm like, man, what, what's going on? I don't see anything I don't want to see, but I can't turn away. Right? Everyone in this whole palace can't turn away from the wreck. You've got advisors, you've got assistants, you've got bodyguards, you've got eunuchs, you've got slaves of slaves and servants of servants, you've got cooks, you've got everybody there, and all eyes just went. And there she is standing all by herself, incredibly small, in this massive, massive room. Everyone's looking at her. What did Sartre say about everybody looking at you? It's hell. That's what hell is, being watched. Where are you, God, right, this text is saying? Where are you, God, is the, the question of the text. It's the engine and the, the blood that's flowing through this text. And then we go to verse 2. Here we go. When the king saw Queen Esther, here it is, standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. It's so divine-like language, it's not even funny. I didn't even have time to even run that down because there's too much in this passage. But that's breathtaking. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hands, and everyone breathes this sigh of relief. She's spared. She's not, she doesn't perish. She's okay. And we all feel good, but what is going to happen for our next two movements of this text, it's like, I want to stop there. I want the sermon to end here. I want to leave on this incredible high note, but you, we can't. Because once you start thinking about it, you know it's okay for you to think what you're thinking right now. People 200, 300, 400 years ago thought the same thing. You look at this text and we all admit it. We go, so God only shows up when you're not perishing? Where is God? Oh, he's with the unperishing. He's with the blessed people. But my loved one perished. But my relationship is perishing. But I'm perishing. But the culture is perishing. Right? Civil public discourse is perishing. Public political sanity is perishing. Charity, respect, disagreeing and still being friends 
is perishing, treating others the way we want to be treated, the way you want to be treated, is perishing. Where are you, God, when everything is perishing? The mystery of the missing God continues, literally, to the next day. Look at verse 7. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, uh, let the king and Haman come back for another party tomorrow. There it is. Tomorrow. I will do, then I will do as the king has asked. Now look, Xerxes knows something's up. I mean, come on, he knows something serious is going on. He knows. He's asked her twice now. She just risked her life to come see him. He's not a dummy. He knows what's happening. Something is happening. Something's on the move. Something is epic. So he asked her, what's up, honey? And she says, I'll tell you tomorrow, honey. Tomorrow, there it is. But a lot can happen in 24 hours, can it not? A lot can happen in a day. What happens? Well, the characters that we care about, Esther and Mordecai, they now move off the stage. It's really fascinating, right? Tomorrow's about ready to happen. It's at the end of the day. So we got the night coming up. So our main characters, whom all this is about, and the people of Israel, whom all this is about, everything, their lives are perishing. Literally, they're in a countdown, a clock countdown. They're Death decree will be executed in 11 months, so this might be the 10th month by now. I don't know, but it's a clock, and it's ticking. They're, they're women, they're children, men, everybody, wiped out, annihilated, destroyed, all their stuff taken. That's about ready to happen. That's the plan. That's what's happening here. The drama is set. The drama is about them. Their lives hang in the balance, and what are they doing? They go to sleep. They go to bed. They do the most inactive human activity on the planet. They do what is as close to being dead, but you're still being alive. They go to sleep. They do nothing. And the tension mounts. Oh, 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 wait. The hero's Esther. Uh Uh-oh, she's going to sleep. Mordecai, he's the hero too. Uh Uh-oh, he's going to sleep. Oh, no! What's going to happen? Who's in control? But notice evil doesn't sleep, does it? Look at verses 9 through 14. What happens next? In 9 through 14, evil works all through the night. Evil never sleeps. Narcissism never sleeps. Look at verse 12. We figure out Haman's universe in verse 12. If Haman had a pair of glasses, he put his pair of glasses on, and this is the way he sees himself. This is the way he sees others. This is the way he sees his spouse. This is the way he sees his sons, because he just said it. This is the way he sees his success. This is the way he sees his position, his governmental power. This is the way he sees it. You ready? No one but me. And then he has this incredibly awkward, I mean, even while you're reading, you're like, It's a cringeworthy moment, right? He spends two verses talking about himself. You know, all of us do it, right? But I have a wife that will kick me about a sentence in, right? And I realize, oh, I'm talking about myself, right? 
There's no filter with him. You've been in those conversations. When you've done it, you've gone a little too far maybe. You went two, three sentences in. You're like, oh, my word, I've just been talking about myself. Right? He doesn't know, man. It's just awkward. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Yeah, all my kids go to Harvard. I was the first astronaut on the moon. Um, yeah, I, I, I taught Bill Gates everything he knows. Right? I mean, it's just horrible. Right? But notice that the engine of evil, according to this text, you want to know what the engine of evil is? No one but me. No one but my importance. No one but my career. No one but my time. No one but my agenda. No one but my power. No one but myself. Hatred and racism never sleeps. Do you see this? I mean, here's the second most powerful man in the world, and he can't have a good day. His day is ruined the moment he sees Mordecai the Jew. Mm. Remember how high he left? Look, nine. He's joyful. His heart is full because it's full of him. And then all of a sudden, he sees Mordecai, and he's like, his day is ruined. It's horrible. He's depressed. Evil hates others. Murder and mayhem never sleeps at night. You see this? During the night, a 75-foot gallows is being built. It's being constructed <laughs> to either murder him by crucifixion or snuff him out and hang him on it so everybody can see. 75 feet means it'll be over the tower walls. So if you're over the walls of the city, you'll see this dude impaled or hanging on a gallows publicly for everyone to see. The shame of it, the the humiliation of it. And, and finally, Mordecai, as he looks at Mordecai, I mean, Haman, as he looks at Mordecai impaled on the 75-foot gallows, he's finally happy. He has a good day. Evil buries others. Hang him. Hang him. Where are you, God? Where are you, this text is asking. Where are you, God, this text is pushing and the movement gets pushing, and now we get to time, or tomorrow, and tomorrow says, here's where he is, you ready? Evil doesn't sleep, and neither does God. This is the most unique book in all the Bible, because what you got in the Bible is you got a record of God supernaturally breaking in and intervening in human history, and what he does, it's so breathtaking, it's so powerful, it's parting of seas, it's raising the dead, it's phenomenal stuff. And he does it corporately, he does it individually, and then he sends these prophets, he sends these people to come along and say, okay, here's what it means. And he has them divinely inspired writing it down. So you have inscripturated divine words about all that God does. So you have divine events and then interpretations of those events because if you left it up to us, we wouldn't interpret it right. And then you go to the New Testament, it's the same thing. you got the first four books of the Bible, they're Jesus' events, Jesus' work, and then you have people interpret them rightly, interpret them wrongly, and then you have the epistles, they come along and they give you the definitive interpretation of the first four books of Jesus. This is what his life meant, this is what his death meant, this is what his resurrection meant. And according to the epistles and all these books that come after the Gospels, they are the power of God for your salvation. Incredible stuff. But the book of Esther doesn't even mention his name. There's not a supernatural intervention at all in the book. It's 
participation in human heart, being human heart, in the circumstances, the events of life of the good. Six one, on that night, the king couldn't sleep. Now, Xerxes, he has many options for insomnia. Listen, he has many options. He can do a late-night Whataburger run to the royal kitchen. He can do a late-night movie by the royal drama team. He could have late-night adult entertainment with one of his thousands of beautiful women at his disposal 24 hours a day. The dude has options. Options. And he says, oh, bring out the history book. Now, I'm going to try to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, nobody knows why he asked for the history book, right? I mean, that's the big thing. He couldn't sleep. Nobody knows why he couldn't sleep. He just couldn't sleep. That night, though, he couldn't sleep when evil's at work, and the two main characters went to bed and went completely passive. But he couldn't sleep, and he asked for a legal book that just kind of says, so-and-so did so-and-so on this day, signed witness. So-and-so did so-and-so on this day. So I guess what I'm thinking, you're probably thinking this too, you know, sometimes you'd like to read to fall asleep. Reading, you know, someone reading out loud can put you to sleep. That's what parents do to children all the time. So this little child is being put to sleep by some reader, right, who's going through the text. But all of a sudden they get to, on this day, Mordecai saved the king's life. Witness? And he jumps out of bed. And he's like, did we reward him? Did we do anything for him? And the assistants, the servants, you see, they're ready, man. They go, no, you didn't, dude. Nope, not at all. He got nothing, nada. Not a thing. You kind of like dissed him. Right? And here in this moment is the whole turning point of the whole book. In this moment, everything changes. That night when a king couldn't sleep, the whole world changes. That night a king couldn't sleep, the whole world gets saved. Because if the Jews are wiped out, there's never a savior. And there's never a savior, there's not you and me. And so all of you and all of your descendants and all your family before you was utterly dependent on that night the king couldn't sleep. And he didn't go for a woman, he didn't go for a run to Whataburger, and he didn't go for a drama or a movie. Breathtaking. Everything changes here while the main characters sleep. Why? Why does it change? Because God never sleeps. Because God is never missing. Because God is in control. And because God is the hero of the story that never mentions his name. I wish I could end here, y'all. I, I wish I could say, well, that solves it. There it is. The case of the missing God solved. He never sleeps. He's in control. But what we just did actually makes it worse. Does it not? 
because this is why it's so hard. You're all thinking it, and 200, 300, 400, 500, and it goes into before Jesus. So now we're talking 3,000, 4,000 years. They all thought the same thing when they read this text. Oh, okay. God never sleeps. God is never missing. God is in control. God is the hero. But my loved one perished. But my relationship is perishing. But I'm perishing. But the culture perishing. Where are you, God? Where everything is perishing. The case of the missing God must continue. Well, it finally ends in verse 13. And just a dating tip, any young people out here that are not married? Young people are not married? Okay. There's some of you out here that are not married. All right. And ladies that are not married. This is mostly I'm speaking to the men out there. This is my dating tip for you. Do not marry someone like the rest. Haman's wife. Just, just saying. It's free. You know, that would be my premarital counseling, and I would do pretty doggone well if that's all I said for five months. Don't marry someone like Zeresh. Don't marry someone like Zeresh. All right. So, verse 7, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. What did he tell them? He just told them about the king's sleepless night. He just told them about discovering Mordecai's heroics, king discovering his heroics. And his, uh, I, he probably told them about how he inserted himself into the honor that needed to be bestowed upon the king when it was really Mordecai. I mean, just completely humiliating, completely horrible. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, well, they knew he, this is what's so incredible. They knew he was of the Jewish people. They said Mordecai the Jew when they gave him the advice to build the gallows for crying out loud. This is why you don't want to marry someone like Zeresh. If Mordecai, before whom you have become to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. In other words, Zeresh and the wise people have read the Bible. Esther might be, probably is, the last book in the Old Testament. So they have all the other writings. This means Zeresh and all the wise men know about the God of the Bible. This means the rest of the wise men once were blind, but now they're see because they know, they know you can never overcome God. God always <laughs> wins. Haman, sorry, dude, you are doomed. Well, I wish you would have told me that before we built the damn gallows. Right? So let's go back to Esther's stunning words of courage. She says, three days and three nights I want you to fast on my behalf. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Stunning words, right? Breathtaking. Now today's passage, on the third day. So when is all this stuff happening, y'all? On the third day. When, when does she stand before the king? On the third day. When does she get her robes and she's in that, that hall of halls of pillars on the third day. When does the king see her and has favor on her on the third day? Do you see it? Esther didn't randomly pick the third day, y'all. It's not like, oh, let's see, one day, fasting one day, two days, no. 
she picked the third day intentionally. And the question is this, what does she know? What does she know about the third day? What does she know about the third day? Answer, she knows what Paul knows about the third day. How can you say she knows what Paul knows about the third day? The reason why I can say she knows what Paul knows about the third day, because Paul says something about the third day that the Old Testament knows. He says in Corinthians, Jesus was raised on the third day. How? How do you know this? In accordance with the scriptures. And you're asking yourself, what scriptures is Paul talking about? And the answer is the Old Testament. And then you go one step further and you say, but nowhere in the Old Testament does it specifically say Jesus raises from the dead on the third day. Exactly. You know what that means? It means the whole DNA of the Old Testament. The whole bone marrow of the Old Testament, the whole psyche of the Old Testament is a resurrection from the dead on the third day. In other words, that the Bible is about the God of great reversals for perishing people. That the Bible is about the God who rescues and saves perishing people. The Bible is about the God who doesn't come in at the one hour, the second hour, the third hour. He comes in at the twelfth hour and completely wins. <laughs> and this third day lives deep in the bones of the Old Testament. It's what the Bible is all about. So what does this mean? It means that what changed Esther, what changed her and turned her into a warrior, what made her so bold and courageous, what, what filled her with such love for her people, which gave her such peace and security, which gave her such, such control and such strength when everything was chaos, is the third day. In other words, Esther knows the answer to the question finally. Where is God? She says, he's with me, of course. Where else would he be? That's why it's a paradise. So, of course, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. The day of victory for the perishing. The day that God wins for the perishing. The day that God makes the great reversal for the perishing. The way that God sets everything right for the perishing. Where are you, God? Answer, the answer from Esther 5 and 6 is, God says, I am with you, of course. And so now you and me, we can go into our marriages, we can go into our homes, we can go into our work, we can go into a culture that's burning, we can go <laughs> into all the chaos that's everywhere with incredible boldness, with incredible courage, with incredible peace, with incredible love for others and say, hey, if I perish, 